So if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 1. We will be in verses 18, 19, and 20. And then we'll tag on 21 at the end. But we'll, we'll look at a few verses here this morning in Philippians 1. If you recall, several weeks ago we looked at chapter 1, verse 6 in Philippians and looked at, observed the faithfulness of God that what He begins, He will bring to completion. And so Paul, as he's writing from prison, more than likely in Rome, he's more than likely staring at the end of his life, and he is writing to this church in Philippi, encouraging them. This, this letter, this four-chapter letter, is packed full of such rejoicing and such high grand words of, of thankfulness and of joy in the Philippians, but especially in what God has done there and what God is doing in Paul's life and through Paul. And so we looked at that one verse, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus, that, that we can trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God. That as that verse we just looked at from Lamentations and memorizing that his mercies are new every morning, that his faithfulness never ends. That God's goodness never has a point of cessation. That He is good and faithful to His promise and faithful to His Word and faithful to His people. He will not jettison His people. He will not quit on His people. He will not turn away from the Gospel and His promises therein. That if you call upon the name of Christ, you will truly be saved. That in Christ, in the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. There is liberty from sin and death in Him. That he will not renege on that. He will not turn away and say, I'm, that, that, that wasn't a great idea. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something new here. I think I'm going to strike a new covenant here and we'll, we'll go a different way. He, that, is not, that is not him. That is not what he will do. What he has begun, he will complete with certainty. And so then we, we hear a little bit uh, after, after verse 6, we hear about Paul giving a report to the Philippians of what's been happening, that he rejoices that he is in prison, which is insane. It's insane. He's rejoicing that he's in prison, but he says that this has been a fruitful time that the gospel has gone to the Praetorian Guard. And so because he's in prison in Rome, the, the royal guard that guards Caesar, that guards uh, the, the, the area of Rome that, uh, that is the highest of their military that they have been coming through guarding him and he has been sharing the gospel with them. And that he says that he is rejoicing because the gospel has gone to them and many have believed. So many of these men have believed in Christ. And so he rejoices in this. He rejoices that, that God has used and been at work within him. And so you may think, you may be like me and think skeptically, okay, God promises that He will be faithful to the end, that what He's begun, He will complete. But there are lots of times where my experience does not match up to this promise. Where what I see happening, what I see my expectations are not met, that this, this doesn't seem right. That if he, if he truly is with me, is bringing these things about, why is this happening? Why, why is this what you have given me? Why, why is this what has occurred in my life and this is what I'm seeing around me and seeing in the world? That connecting this experience with the promise of what God says 
can be difficult at times. Also, what if you, you find yourself in a situation where it's your plea to the Lord that I've been, I've been doing the right things, like I've been keeping the right plate spinning, I have been reading the Bible regularly, I've been in church, we've been memorizing the Bible, like I've been doing the stuff, why? Why has this occurred? Why am I hurt? Why am I injured? Why is this person mad at me? Why is this family member just left and is steeped in rebellion against the Lord and they want nothing to do with the things of God and they want nothing to do with me unless I give them something? Like, why? Why has this occurred? God, you are faithful. Why, why have these things happened? Well, Paul gives us such good stuff here in these verses. He gives us such incredible instruction in his example of how he is strengthened by God's promise and presence as it abides, God abides with him by the Spirit that even in his confinement and in conflict around him, that he has no control over, that he is brought to rejoicing in God's faithfulness. And so there's some real, there's some real dirt to, to, to sink into, to root into, some real meat to, to chew on here in these, these short verses. So if you would read with me in Philippians 1, 18, 19, and 20. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, is 21, and to die. For me, <laughs> should have just stuck with what was printed, rather than trying to riff on my memory, which is poor. For, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, we have, we have three things we can glean from these verses. One, the Christian's joy is in our Savior's glory. That Paul, Paul is in prison. He's confined. He is guarded. He is not free. He cannot go and do as he pleases, but he is stuck waiting to give a witness to the gospel to Caesar. And so as he is confined, he hears, he hears in the verses before verse 18, he hears of those who are going out and preaching the gospel, some from genuine motives, but some who are preaching from selfish ambition to harm Paul. That there are people out there who are perhaps in Rome or perhaps in other parts. They might have even been in Philippi. We are not given details. But what we are told is these people are preaching the Gospel in order to harm Paul, to hurt him from envious, selfish motives. And so as he hears of this conflict... We pick up here, what is he to do? Verse 18, but in every way that Christ is proclaimed, he rejoices that the gospel is proclaimed even though those who are proclaiming it have, have mixed desires. That they, they preach in order to harm him, thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. 
And so this group, this group that is preaching, there's, there's not a lot given to us, but there's a curious difference in how Paul speaks about them from how he speaks about false teachers in other places. If you go to Galatians 1, Galatians 1 talks about uh, false teachers in several places in the, in the letter to the Galatia. But specifically in verses 6 through 8, Paul addresses in very strong words a group of people who are teaching false doctrine, false things about God. And so it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. And so this group, this group that is labeled the Judaizers that we see more in chapter 3, we see more details about what they're doing, that they are, they are telling them, the Galatians, that they need to go back to the law. They need to go back to the Old Testament and add it to Christ in order to truly be right before God. That grace, trusting in grace by faith, is not sufficient. It is not enough. It is just an aspect of it. But you have to return and, and trust in the law of God that you follow the practices there, and then by following them rightly along with faith, then God is satisfied. Then you are forgiven. And so he very strongly tells them, no, this is not it. They are accursed. May they be accursed because they preach a false gospel. And so if we bring this back to Philippi, what seems to be happening in this group who is preaching and teaching is they're not preaching a false gospel. They are preaching from bad motives. They are preaching from envious hearts who envy this apostle to the Gentiles. This man who is renowned and who has traveled the world and planted countless churches that God has given exceeding revelation, that God has pinned most of the New Testament through. That this, this apostle, this selfless apostle Paul, that they are coming in his confinement as he is limited and cannot go out. They are seizing an opportunity to enviously go and step on his territory, so to speak. To go preach and share the gospel that they would gain some of the renown, that they would gain some of the notoriety, that their name would be written of and known of. And so Paul, as they are preaching the gospel, their hearts are wrong, but Paul is rejoicing. Paul is rejoicing that Christ is glorified. That Christ is exalted and that the gospel is known even though these people are preaching to try to hurt him and harm him. So envy is not common. The word envy is not common in the New Testament. It only appears twice. And so it doesn't get a lot of attention in the New Testament. But covetousness is all over the Bible. And there's a connection between envy and covetousness. Specifically, envy is wanting something that someone else 
has, someone else is, wanting a position or a place, it's less material than coveting, which is wanting stuff, which is wanting something somebody else has. And there's a connection in this. So I think we can go to a few places and look at coveting and try to bring some connection to this. Because none of us are Paul. None of us are in prison. And so that the connection here may be difficult to make, but I think we can see some really good practical stuff for us when we, when we look at the bigger picture of coveting and envy. So coveting, it's, it's age old. Like it's, it's in the beginning. We see Cain and Abel. Right there in the beginning, these guys who are, who are as, as Cain slays his brother because he covets, he wants what his brother has. He wants the, the favor God gives him for his right sacrifice. And so we have it right here at the beginning. The first murder occurs because of coveting. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's prohibited in the 10th commandment of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. That coveting is something we see even further along. We see an issue in the New Testament. We see an issue with the disciples. The 12 disciples who are fighting over who has the most authority. Who will sit at the seat of honor? Who is the greatest among us? We see it again and again as they're arguing over place. They're coveting what they don't understand. They're making idol out of things that is not theirs to begin with. So we see it there, and we see it in the religious leaders as they are jealous. They are jealous and envious of Jesus' renown, of Jesus' authority with the people, of His authority in teaching, and is part of what leads them to seek His crucifixion. Their jealousy, their envy of Jesus, it is all over the Bible. This envious, jealous covetousness. And so it should ring in our heads that this is dangerous. We can attach so much just terrible things in Scripture to this sin. This state of mind, this decision, which ultimately is founded in idolatry and founded in a lack of faith in God. This is something it can hide within us. Like we can pet this little sin and keep it alive within us and it not be evident outside of us. And with all sin, it leads to death. In all sin, it brings about destruction. In all sin, it poisons us. And so it's a losing fight. It's a losing fight if that covetousness, if that envy is something that you prize and you keep alive believer, Christian, and you don't surrender it and repent of it and give that to the Lord. We have two places. Luke Luke 12.15 tells us, Jesus speaking, and He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be on guard. Fight against it. Be aware of it. Because your life doesn't consist in what you have, what you hold. Your life is more than that. Your life. Your life consists of the Lord or the absence thereof. Your life consists of whether you are in His hands or whether His wrath is upon you. Here's another one. 
Ephesians 5, 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Ultimately, fate is the issue within coveting, envying, this jealousy. Ultimately, it's faith. Ultimately, it is trusting in whatever it is that it has become an idol in your life and it has been raised to a place of authority that if you get this thing, if you have this thing, it will satisfy, it will bring pleasure, it will fix something. Ultimately, it is a misplaced faith. You're trusting in something that this person has. This person is part of who they are. If I just get this, if I just have this characteristic, it will fix things. It will be better if I just have this possession, this something, enough money. If I just have this health, this wealth, if I just have this, uh, this place in career and life, that it will accomplish and fix what ultimately is only fixed by the Lord and only fixed by, by forsaking those idols and trusting in God through Christ. Contentment is born from faith. Are you content in the things of the Lord? Are you trusting in, in Him or in something else? Paul is rejoicing that the gospel is known that Christ is glorified. He is imprisoned. He has no rights. He is not standing upon his rights as an apostle or a Roman citizen who has been falsely accused. He willingly is in this place for the glory of God so that he will be able to give a witness to Christ before Caesar, before the Roman authorities. And so he is rejoicing that God is being glorified, that Christ is being preached even to his own detriment. Do we have the same value? Do we place the same value in the gospel? Is it our joy like it is Paul's to see Christ exalted? Or instead, when someone does us wrong, do do we just get angered and frustrated and want want to retaliate? Paul, Paul is overjoyed. He is overcome by his Savior and that he is glorified. The wonderfully glorious Christ that he would be known that Paul, he is willing to share in suffering, tragedy, prison in what he is facing so that, he, so that others can rejoice in Christ and know him. So number two, let's keep moving. Paul is supported by the prayers of the saints and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Paul now rejoices in that his brothers and sisters will be praying for him and that his Savior's sufficient imbibing with the Spirit strengthens him for salvation. So, Paul, as we see in verse 19, says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so several of these words may look very different in your translation, these, the words in this verse are packed with meaning and are really important to understand what he is saying here. And so, first of all, this word know is the same word from back in chapter, in verse 6. This, this know of certainty, that he has certain knowledge that this is true. There's not an ounce of doubt. He knows that this will occur. That what, what has been promised will occur. That God will bring it about. 
that he is certain of God's work of grace and then it will culminate in his salvation. It will culminate in his life that he will be cared for. And so, for I know that through your prayers that we have this reality of praying that he expects the Philippians to be praying for him as this introduction in chapter 1 says clearly that he is praying for them. That we have this back and forth. We have this expectation that the people of God are praying for each other. That they are praying for each other that they would be strengthened, that they would be grown, they would be matured, they would see and hear who God is, and that they would boldly witness to who Christ is to others. So this prayer that he, he is trusting, it is fervently asking that they would be in prayer for him is, is timely for us now as we have so many of our own who are not with us, so many of our families who some are gone and some have remained, that we would be praying for God's people. We would be praying for those who are out serving. We'd be praying for those who the Lord has led away from us. That we'd be interceding for them. That they would be strengthened. They would be filled with the Spirit of God. And that they would see the salvation of God in their lives and in the lives of others. And so, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What does the, what's the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Do we have a confusion here of the Trinity? Like, what, what's he talking about in the Spirit of Christ that... That is this separate, is this, is this the, the earthly spirit of Christ that Jesus, as he took flesh, that as he has a human spirit, what does he mean here? We don't have a confusion, we don't have a, a melding or a mixing of the Trinity here. Paul specifically, because of this context, is pointing us to the reality, the reality of the Spirit's work in his people is only because of Christ. The Holy Spirit is at work within His people because of the work of Christ on the cross. Because Christ came, gave His life, and when He was resurrected on the third day, that because of Jesus and His work, we then are able to enjoy the unity and harmony with God by His Spirit. That all the abiding presence of God in the Spirit we enjoy because of Christ, and we have the promise, the Spirit leading and strengthening His people because of who Christ is and what He has done. And so he is certain that these joint things, the prayers of the saints for Paul and by the help of the Spirit, that it will, the provision of the Spirit, it will lead to His deliverance. That deliverance is specifically the word for salvation. It's the word used over and over again throughout the New Testament for being saved, for salvation. And so the focus of what Paul is saying is not that I know I will be acquitted tomorrow. He's not saying that I trust that God is going to take care of me. He's going to change my circumstances, get me out of prison, and Caesar is going to say, you're awesome, and he gets to go about uh, his life as a, as a free man. But specifically, the focus here is one that he is, he's uncertain about the physical ramifications of his imprisonment, but he knows the outcome of his life. That ultimately, God will provide for him that he has life eternal in Christ. The Spirit will strengthen him to get him across the finish line. Whether it's in a day, whether it's in a week, whether it's in 40 years for Paul, 
that God is faithful to preserve him, to strengthen him, and to get him there to the eternal salvation of his soul. That he knows, he knows that God will lead and guide and provide for him. It is only in Jesus that we have the help of the Spirit, the strengthening of believers and the endurance in life to faithfully proclaim the gospel. Let's move on. Last point. The Christian's joy in fully honoring Jesus. These last two verses. Read with me if you would. Verse 20. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So notice this word for eager expectation. It's a compound word that carries, it carries a wonderful meaning. That in one sense, it means a stretching. If you think of running a race, trying to cross the finish line, you're stretching your head out, stretching your neck out to cross, to focus on the end. And also the sense of turning away from. And so it is, it is a heightened focus of being focused towards something and being, uh, not being distracted by things around you. And so what he is saying is that he, he is focusing upon the outcome. He's focusing upon his hope of that he will not be ashamed and that he will, be, he will honor Christ as always, but he will honor Christ in his body. That Christ will be honored in his life, whether it is in life or in death, whether it is in future days of ministry or whether it is in the culmination of his life in what will be his crucifixion shortly. And so he is focused away from things that would distract him and focused towards what God is doing in his life and what God is using him to do. He is intent to publicly show and reveal who God is, who Christ is. And that is what he trusts that God has put him there to be. That God has placed him where he is for this purpose. That God, Christ Jesus, would be glorified. Would be glorified in his body. That that word for, uh, for honored, it entails magnifying, making great. You can't increase the greatness of God. You can't increase who Jesus is, but it is a a revealing and showing him as he is that he is glorious and more will know of his gloriousness and so paul paul is saying that his life is committed to christ he is committed to the lord he is committed that in what he does in what he says in how he lives that god will be honored that christ will be honored christ will be exalted christ will be known in every aspect of his life. Not at a time, not at a period, not at a moment, not at a day of the week, but in his life as it has been. His practice is that Christ would be honored. It is his priority. Is it our priority? Is it my priority? Is it your priority that Christ is honored in your life? Is it your priority that Christ would be exalted over yourself? One specific thing that I find really hard in this passage is the selflessness of Paul. He is so selfless as he is sitting in prison 
encouraging these people in Philippi, as he is rejoicing that people who intend harm upon him, who are envious of him, are preaching the gospel and Christ is being known. He doesn't argue for himself. But he is rejoicing that he has the opportunity and is waiting for the opportunity to tell the emperor, to tell Caesar who Jesus is. He is so selfless. I am so selfish. And I imagine you could echo the same. That the tone of our lives, it should be like Paul, but so often it's not. So often, it, we could not echo this, that we have set as our practice in life that Christ is honored in our bodies. Christ is honored by all of our lives. He has a place here, but not all of it. The gospel, the gospel of God, of what Jesus has done for us, must work in and through every fiber of our lives. That we must, like Colossians 3, we must put to death the things of the former life. That we would give life by His Word, meditating on His Scripture and what He has done. That He would raise and fill us and change us and continue to mold and make us to be like Him, to be selfless like Christ. To empty of ourselves what honor we would seek to grasp for ourselves in order that Christ would be known. In order that God would be seen clearly and rightly. We would be like John the Baptist who said, may I decrease that he would increase. That we would have a heart of selflessness to see Christ exalted. Other people benefited. That others would come to know the greatness and the glory of Christ even to our own detriment and harm. The Gospel, Christ brings us there. That is who Christ is. That is what He has done. What we're about to do is we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper. It is a vivid picture of the physical sacrifice of Christ. That Christ came selflessly to give His life for us. To give His life for sinful humanity who has turned everything they are away from Him as He came and gave Himself for us that we could be forgiven of our sin and healed of the self-destruction and our rebellious efforts against Him. We could be healed and forgiven by Him. That He was righteous, we are not. He is righteous, excuse me, not past tense. He is righteous and we are not. But by His free grace, He has extended and shared His righteousness to His people. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ first and foremost? That you trust your life to Him? That you trust in Him that He is the Lord and He has given His life for you? And then believer, Christian, if you like me find yourself lacking in view of Paul and in view of his selflessness, in view of his priorities, in view of his joy, why? Is it because you've given life to things that are of the old way of life, that are of the world, that, that are not ordering your life after His instruction and then spending and meditating in His Word? Is it a lack of that? A lack of time with Him? A lack of abiding in Him that you need to repent of and come full forward to Him to trust in Him? To fill yourself with His Word? If we had time, we'd look at Romans 7 and 8 that talks about the law and how the law is not the place to go. 
Self-mortification, just, just chastising ourselves is not the answer. If you see the selfishness, if you see that within yourself, if you see the gospel is not very important, the glory of Christ is not super important to you, the answer is not the law. It's not just to turn around and then say, I, I'm terrible and how can I improve me? What can I do? The wrong thing is that. The right thing is turning to the cross of Christ to trust fully in Him, to turn away from those, and to look to Jesus. Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What the law could not do, the Spirit of God did in Christ. That Christ came to shatter the, the confines of the law, to put it aside that we, if you are in Christ, you are new and you are joined to Him by His Spirit so that you are connected to Him not by your obedience to the law, but by the obedience of Christ. Thus, come back to Him. Turn your life to Him. Come before Him at the cross. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You. God, I thank You for Your grace. Lord, I thank You for what You have done, that as we see in Paul, Your servant, he, his service is clearly identified in his selflessness. That he is a servant of the true servant Christ because we see this in him. Lord, may genuine faith exhibit itself in our lives. God, may we be filled, Lord, with the Spirit, that the Spirit would show itself in fruit. That, God, our hearts and our lives, our priorities, our desires would be changed, God. That we, Lord, would not desire and seek the things of the world, the things that, Lord, destroy and kill, Lord. But that, God, Lord, You would change our desires, Lord. You would change our hearts to cherish eternal things, to cherish, Lord, the things of heaven. That if we are in Christ, we have inherited that one day we will be face to face with You in Your kingdom, God. Lord, I ask Your help this morning as we come before Your table to respond to You and Your gift of grace that, God, You would lead and guide us to trust and repent of things that are sinful and trust, Lord, in You. That we would see, Lord, in these, these elements, these pieces, Lord, a picture of the reality of what You, Lord Jesus, have done for us. As You truly have given Your life for us that we would be saved. We thank You and ask these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. So men, if you all would...